With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. It is 2018, and I cannot believe we are still talking about what a woman can and cannot wear. It's 2018, and I can't believe a lot of things. Yeah. But (laughs) um, the fact that that we are having that discussion, Cass, it is pretty mind-boggling. Last year, the United States Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, agreed to modernize the dress code for the House of Representatives. Um, But this was only after... Female lawmakers exercise their quote-unquote right to bear arms. And this is not exactly what you might think. They wore sleeveless business attire in protest of the House's strict, and I must say somewhat antiquated, dress code, which up until then had told women that they could not reveal their arms. Yeah, and they couldn't wear, like, open-toed shoes either. (laughs) So, and just last month, Criticism of actress Jennifer Lawrence's decision to pose in the cold in a strappy, form-fitting Versace gown caused public outcry. Oh, you're talking about there's a picture of her where she's posed in the middle of four men. They're wearing coats, but she has on this gorgeous dress. Yes. Uh, It's quite cold outside. Uh, And we are in the midst of the powerful and very necessary Me Too movement. And some people saw this image as yet another visual manifestation of the gender imbalance of Hollywood. And while this is certainly true in many parts of the industry, one person was quick to shut this particular example down. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't really know where to get started on this, quote, Jennifer Lawrence wearing a revealing dress in the cold controversy, Jennifer Lawrence said on her social media. (laughs) This is not only utterly ridiculous, I am extremely offended. That Versace dress was fabulous. You think I'm going to cover that gorgeous dress up with a coat and scarf? I love fashion, and that was my choice. And I have to say, April, that I agree with her, and I'm pretty confident that the subject of today's podcast would, too. The controversy about women, and especially famous women, put on their bodies is nothing new. Over 100 years ago, the French performer Gabby Delis, literally Gabby of the Lilies, was no stranger to the controversy surrounding her clothing. But just like Jennifer Lawrence... Gabby put little stock in the public's constant criticism of her life choices. Unapologetically independent, Gabby's phenomenal and international success as a singer and dancer in the 19-teens was inextricably linked to her appearance. On and offstage, Gabby appeared in the latest, most avant-garde creations that Parisian couturers had to offer. When fashion alone was not part of the spectacle, Gabby's body was. I have to say, I am really excited to talk about Gabby today. And I I actually chose her because as a subject, I've always found, I've been infatuated with her and the over-the-top glamour that she represented. But in my research, she really revealed herself to be so much more than just another pretty fashion-forward woman. Her performances were incredibly risque, and she often paired body-revealing costumes with provocative dances in this overt display of sexuality that pushed the boundaries of then-acceptable views on morality and propriety. We're talking the 1910s here. And these boundaries are boundaries that she herself chose to push. She was in control of her image and her body. And Gabby's daring often earned her the indignation of a society grappling with the actions and advancements of modern women 
and the subsequent breakdown of traditional gender barriers in the era surrounding World War I. Off the stage, Gabby's lifestyle was similarly an experimentation in 21st century modernity as she navigated what it meant to be a successful, independent woman in the 1910s. But before she was Gabby the Lilies, international temptress and celebrated star, she was Marie-Elise Gabrielle Kerr, born in Marseille, France, on November 4th, 1881. Daughter of a successful textile merchant, Gabby grew up a spirited child, the second oldest of four, and her mother took Gabby to the theater at a very young age, and this immediately sparked a desire in Gabby to be a stage performer. After attending a convent school until the age of 17, Gabby began her formal voice training at the local music conservatory. And her biographer, James Gardner, writes of this time, he says, Although her voice was not powerful by any means, she had at least learned to sing in key. And besides, her voice was secondary to something that she possessed in great abundance, personality and the beginnings of her own unique style. After the completion of her training, Gabby tried to find work in local music halls and cafes in Marseille, but she was unsuccessful. So like any ambitious, stage-obsessed young woman of the 19th century, her attention naturally turned to Paris. While at the conservatory, she had befriended a teacher by the name of Marie-Therese Kolb, who was now living in Paris, and she assured Gabby's parents that she would keep an eye on their daughter if she moved there. So perhaps comforted by their familiarity with Marie, Gabby's parents agreed to let their 21-year-old daughter move to the big city in 1902, Although I have a distinctive feeling that Gabby probably would have done it anyways. Yeah, I don't recall asking my parents permission for anything when I was 21. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't had been out of the house for three years before yeah. that. Um, but can you imagine what it must have been like for this impressionable, convent-educated girl to arrive in turn-of-the-century Paris? It was such an exciting period of innovation and artistic expression and music halls were one of the most popular forms of entertainment in the bustling city. And they were places where variety acts were entertained audiences from across the economic spectrum, from high to low. And there was this really burgeoning celebrity culture that surrounded a legion of female performers who kind of reigned over these leading venues like the Moulin Rouge and the Folie Bergère. And there's tons and tons of posters and photographs of these beguiling beauties such as Emmeline Dallin-Sion, Carolina LaBelle Otero, and Leanne de Pougy, who enjoyed fame and fortune that girls like Gabby dreamed of. Gabby's career began humbly enough. After arriving in Paris, Marie-Therese had proved herself invaluable. She found Gabby both a place to live and a job. And Gabby made her stage debut in the chorus of a production entitled Ia de Surprise, or there are some surprises at the Parisiana, a small music hall. There was only one problem. April, when you think of chorus girls and music halls such as, say, the Moulin Rouge, what immediately comes to mind? Well, I think knickers and can-can girls. Exactly. <laughs> and let's just say at this point, Gabby was not the greatest dancer, but she worked really, really hard to change that. And people say that a lot about her. She was a really hard worker over her career. And what she perhaps lacked in dance and even, I hate to say it, singing skills, she made up for in her comedic timing and irresistible je ne sais quoi. She gradually moved her way up from these sort of bit chorus parts to bigger roles, while all the while experimenting and developing her stage persona. When she performed Mazelle Chichi at the Scala in March of 1904, she decided to try her hand at a decidedly more exotic name, Nishka. 
(laughs) (laughs) But by her second Scala production in December of that same year, Nishka had disappeared, and so had even Gabrielle Kerr, which was her birth name. They were no more. Henceforth, she would only ever be known as Gabby Delis, Gabby of the Lilies. In these early years of her career, Gabby conformed to the established music hall style of costume, typically worn by soubrettes, the archetypal comedic character she so often played. Now, these body-revealing ensembles worn by herself and her contemporaries exploited the fashionable silhouette so as to best eroticize the wearer. So you have women wearing provocatively low-cut gowns and with small, tightly corseted waists, and these were accompanied by short petticoats that revealed a scandalous amount of leg. And by that you mean she was showing her calf. Exactly. Ooh. But this was racy stuff for 1905. This ensemble paired with Gabby's playful poses and coy inviting smiles, the overall effect served to underscore an almost childlike innocence while simultaneously emphasizing her sexuality in a direct appeal to male audiences. So Gabby wore this corseted costume for her breakout role in the self-proclaimed musical extravaganza, the new Aladdin at London's Gaiety Theater in 1906. It was during this production that Gabby's dance skills improved immensely under the tutelage of a British choreographer, Will Bishop. Years later, Bishop remarked on Gabby's determination. He said of her, I have never met anyone so indefatigable or persevering in my whole life. When she was learning in a new dance, nothing else mattered, end quote. So with this sort of training and determination, Gabby began to transform her dancing ability. And in the end, it really paid off. It did. So the play pictorial acclaimed Gabby's performance in the new Aladdin, a pronounced success. Two different magazines, Tatler and Sketch, took interest in the play's star and one of her costumes in particular. They both featured full-page pictures of her in this daringly low-cut swimsuit she wore in a number entitled Sur la Plage or On the Beach. And the swimsuit with its plunging neckline reflected a boldness and daring that would remain a staple of Gabby's wardrobe in years to come. The conventional corseted silhouette, however, would not. Gabby's success in the new Aladdin was followed by a pretty rapid rise to fame, attested to by a surprisingly vast number of surviving photographs of her from this exact time period. And they are fantastic. Immediately Google Gabby Delete. And we'll definitely post a few on our Instagrams, which dress listeners, you should definitely check out and follow us if you haven't already. We post images to accompany each week's podcast daily. So follow us at Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. By 1909, Gabby was a top bill at Paris's Moulin Rouge and at London's Alhambra Music Hall. And she'd also at the same time completed a very successful European tour. She was busy. An image of Gabby from this year presents a very striking contrast to the coquettish young woman of the new Aladdin fame from only years prior. She's confident now and very assertive. Gone is a sort of coy young girl Gabby now stares into the camera, straight into the camera. Her brown hair had been lightened to blonde, and her long curls were cropped in favor of a shorter hairstyle. Her hand rests comfortably on her uncorseted waist, which is emphasized by a high-waisted, form-fitting, sparkly gown. Her fan-feathered headpiece and long rope of pearls complete the costume of a woman transformed. She's no longer a girl. She's a woman now. Mm-hmm. And a very fashion-forward woman at that. 
And this image is from a production in which Gabby starred entitled Without a Grudge at the Capucine Theater in Paris. And it was after a performance of this show in November of 1909 that Gabby had a fateful encounter with an audience member that would arguably rechart her career. So it, by this time, Gabby was a European celebrity. Her alleged affair with King Manuel of Portugal rocketed her to international stardom. Yeah, so the press's love affair with Gabby's love life had actually begun earlier that year when Crown Prince Wilhelm of Germany reportedly fell in love with her after seeing her perform at the Metropole in Berlin. Subsequent stories about her link her to various dukes and princes following her on tour to Vienna and Budapest. None of which are verified, I should say. (laughs) This is definitely gossip and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just think about, like, all those, like, gossip rags that you see yeah, at the today, store. Like, oh, somebody's dating so-and-so. Mm-hmm, somebody's dating so Very much the same thing. Yeah. Who is Taylor Swift dating? Yeah, things have not changed that much. It's just gotten <laughs> a lot easier and faster to stay up to date on your favorite celebrities. Yes. But, yeah, gossip columns are nothing new. No. But none of Gabby's royal connections were as scandalous or caught the public's imagination quite like her relationship with the 21-year-old King Manuel of Portugal. The king had recently been forced into exile amidst political upheaval in his country, and he had become quite the man about town in both London and in Paris. And all of a sudden, there's these rumors of an affair between Gabby and Prince Manuel, and they were very quickly sensationalized in the international press, with some articles going so far as to blame the entire collapse of the Portuguese monarchy upon the king's lavish gifts to Gabby. And one of these gifts reportedly was a three-yard strand of rail pearls from the royal treasury. So the press was more than happy to cast Gabby as a sort of frivolous, pleasure-seeking seductress. You know, they were citing her elaborate costumes, her jewels, as evidence of her assumed hedonism. Hmm, does this sound familiar? Like a familiar tale to you, Cass? Every episode. (laughs) Marie Antoinette. Yeah, (laughs) women's fashion, root of all the world's evil. (laughs) We have already commented on Gabby's adherence to the standardized soubrette uniform in her early career, but as her career progressed and her parts got bigger and bigger, she had really looked for a way to distinguish herself, and she found that answer in high fashion, which proved itself to be a powerful tool in crafting her oak glamour image. And she was not afraid to wear designers' more avant-garde creations. Gabby's early adoption of the uncorseted, columnar style of dress, heralded by fashion revolutionaries such as Paul Perret and Lucille Lady Duff Gordon, aligned perfectly with her fashion-forward image and her modern lifestyle. So Gabby's profession and the financial independence it afforded her meant she could freely explore the expressive qualities of clothing, traversing societal dictates on gender and propriety on her own terms. So Gabby was actually one of Cecil Beaton, who was kind of a bon vivant photographer, writer, like cultural touchstone of Mm -hmm. this particular era. Um, She was one of his favorites, and he writes about her. He says, She walked the tightrope of near-barbarous taste with a rare audacity, scarcely regarding the drop to utter vulgarity that was right below her. Her taste ran amok in a jungle of feathers and offsprays, diamonds, chiffons, and furs. Most of those who copied her, however, did so without taste. Gabby's personality alone was fully capable of sustaining those outfits for which the word bizarre must take on new undertones. 
Beaton went on to say she was a marvelous creature of brilliantine and brilliance and Christmas tree tinsel, madly artificial and gaily irresponsible. She had the incessant vitality of an overexcited child and oh, what sex appeal, oh, what glamour. I love that quote by Van Beaton. He obviously was like quite smitten by her. Yeah, and the costumes he designed for Audrey Hepburn in, I want to say My Fair Lady, mm-hmm. are based on this period. Oh, interesting. Um, and based on a lot of Gabby Delee's designs. Huh. Did not know that. I actually like to think of her as the Lady Gaga of the 1910s or <laughs> early career Gaga, I should say. Personality-wise, I would have to say that she sounds a bit like Cardi B. Yeah. <laughs> And and while Gabby certainly never wore a meat dress or my personal favorite Gaga ensemble, the Kermit the Frog covered coat, uh, Gabby did not shy away from the extremes of fashion, especially when it came to headwear. And by 1910, fashion was certainly helping her out a lot. Women's hats had reached these epic proportions, but no one's hats were bigger than Gabby DeLee. Yeah, Beaton actually once called her a human Avery. So ubiquitous were these bird feathers on her giant hats, and he also compared them to airplane propellers. Yeah, so more was definitely more for Gabby, and there's this amazing image of her from 1910, which I'm going to post on Instagram, in which she is literally encompassed by this ginormous hat. It's half her body. The brim's circular, and it extends on all sides of her head for about a foot, and then it's topped with these huge, and I mean huge, ostrich feathers. They're maybe three feet long, and they cascade down from its crown to surround Gabby in what appears to be a befeathered halo. So Gabby really embraced its extravagant and over-the-top headwear as her signature, and it would become synonymous with her name for her entire career. She would later tell the Green Book magazine, she said, quote, My hat is the soul of my costume. It is me, my personality, my individuality, not a covering for the head, but an ornament. I love my hat. He makes a frame for my face, for my smile, for my brain. I buy a hundred new ones of him each season that I live. He is my best friend, my hat, vraiment. I adore him. (laughs) Um, And it's really utterly fascinating to imagine what it must have looked like to walk down the streets in the 19-teens in Paris to see all of these women wearing these enormous feather-bedecked specimens of millinery. <laughs> I, yeah, I have to wonder if Gabby wore one of these giant confections to the studio in 1910 because this is the year she made the only known recordings of her singing. She recorded three songs during the session, and I'm actually really excited to share one of these entitled Philomene with you today after a short word from our sponsors. Thank you. 
we just listened to a 1910 recording of Gabby singing Philomene. I just love how she laughs at the end. What did you think about it? It sounds like she's having a blast. (laughs) So Gabby recorded this song as well as two others at a studio in London where she was in rehearsals for a racy new act at the Alhambra called Les Debuts de Chichin. The production debuted in early 1911, and it included a very provocative bedroom sketch that featured a series of comedic encounters between a woman and her three lovers. It was a huge hit and only kind of furthered to underscore Gabby's racy reputation. She's really, yeah, she's not fighting it at this point. No, she's embracing it (laughs) wholeheartedly. (laughs) In the fall of that same year, Gabby packed her bags and lay debut to Shishin and headed to America where she was already a celebrity before ever having set foot in the country. So the arrival of the, quote, siren of international notoriety, end quote, was a highly anticipated event. Gabby DeLee, here in startling gown, wrote the New York Times shortly after her arrival. Paris singer appears in green and gold dress and enjoys New York sights, has her famous pearls silent on King Manuel and voluble on other subjects, brings costumes in 27 trunks. So Gabby had signed a lucrative three-year contract with the Schubert Brothers of New York City, for $4,000 a week. That is over $100,000 a week today. So not shabby. And then uh, for each year after that, she was paid $1,000 additional weekly. So this contract made Gabby one of the highest paid performers of the time. I just want to clarify. What we're saying is, is that she was making, in today's money, $100,000 a week. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just to be clear here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can help you Not understand. Not too shabby. <laughs> no, can understand, like, the kind of money that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but the transplantation of Gabby's Le Debut de Chichine act to the Schubert Winter Garden Theater in New York City, this gave her time to rehearse for another original Schubert production that she was going to do called Vera Violetta. It was during rehearsals that Gabby met a young American dancer and choreographer by the name of Harry Pilser her dance partner for the show, and a man to whom she said to have an immediate attraction. And Pilser would remain her dance partner and sometimes lover for almost the entirety of her career. And it's really under Pilser's tutelage that Gabby is said to have gone from a decent to a phenomenal dancer. With Pilser's choreography, so too did her act and her costumes go from what was considered racy Mm -hmm. to downright sexual. In Vera Violetta, she and Harry debuted the Gabby Glide, which quickly joined the list of sexually provocative new dances of the period, such as the tango, that shocked conservative tastes. Including the Pope. Yeah, including the Pope. (laughs) Before making its Broadway debut, Vera Violetta was previewed out of town at a theater in New Haven, Connecticut. Also to take stage in this production was a then-unknown 18-year-old singer by the name of... May West. Ooh. Talk about another woman with chutzpah. But get this, May was only in the production for this one performance before suddenly departing due to a reported bout with pneumonia. However, that's supposedly not the truth, April. Story has it that Gabby actually had May fired after she upstaged her. Mm-mm-mm. And May herself confirmed her calculated efforts, not that she was fired, but that she did upstage her. In an interview later in her life, she said... I had my entrance before Gabby's, so I went to wardrobe and asked them to get the fanciest costume and headdress they could find for me. And when I came on, I got a tremendous ovation because everybody thought I was Gabby. Thus, when Gabby finally came to the stage, she received only a lackluster response. So needless to say, May did not return to Vera Violetta. 
Critics of the New Haven performance of Vera Violetta dubbed the show as, quote, vulgar and suggestive, with, goes on to say that other parts objected to on account of the clothing worn. So because of this, the Schubert brothers were forced to tone it down, but only a little bit, just a tad. (laughs) (laughs) Turn down the volume like one notch. Mm -hmm. Um, The show went on to be a tremendous success on Broadway and ran for 112 performances. And at the show's conclusion, Gabby left New York City and she took her new dance partner and the Gabby Glide with her. And throughout 1912, Gabby and Harry performed to audience acclaim in shows in both London and Paris. But, while they might have been the toast of the town, cartoonists and satirists repeatedly took the opportunity to harshly parody Gabby's performance and her appearance, and critics lambasted her morality in the paper. And I just have to say, I do not envy this type of scrutiny that comes with being famous. No. And, you know, this, this, these jabs might have been, you know, happening in the paper at the time. But any celebrity, you know, gets this on Instagram and social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've even had people <laughs> saying some things, not very nice things to us. And yeah. we're just podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> really, everybody has a platform today. Uh <laughs> So a publicity photograph from 1912 reveals Gabby and Pilser in a close horizontal embrace, her scant knee-length costume falling away to reveal a bare figure seemingly devoid of any undergarments. While Gabby's previous soubrette costume had been undeniably provocative, it still was acceptable because it embraced tenants of the then-fashionable silhouette, and thus it was in line with societal standards of the ideal body and feminine beauty and what women should wear. And Gabby just shattered these conventions. In her performances, she took ownership of her body and her sexuality. And this is this daring expression of modernity. But while her performances were exciting to many people, it was downright appalling to others. In 1912, Gabby sued the English journalist Ernest Charles for defamation of character after he published a scathing article in which he labeled Gabby the, quote, chief symbol of the reign of imbecility on the French music hall stage. Ouch. Ouch, yeah, you're right. Charles further claimed that Gabby possessed no talent for singing or dancing, and he basically reduced her attributes to the purely physical. He said, she is a pretty girl who entered into her glory by the portal of a royal palace. <laughs> Slut shaming from 1912. And perhaps another example, um, somewhat unexpected, example of discriminatory gender standards from this period, Pilser's pivotal role in Gabby's performances and her training was hardly, if ever, mentioned. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. Because it was just, okay let's for— Let's just focus all our negativity mm-hmm. on Gabby's wardrobe and on Gabby's body. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if gender discrimination is not clear enough already— Gabby lost her defamation case, but it really actually says a lot about the lengths she was willing to go to defend her name. She was not letting people get away with this. And this would not be the last time she had to defend her name. The following year, the costumes Gabby wore in a London production entitled A La Carte at the Palace Theatre in London caused a national scandal, with several clergymen calling for the end of a production deemed highly indecent. Her offense, April? Oh, you know, once again, wearing pants. We're going to we're just going to talk about this forever until yeah. the end of time. Um, one of her many so-called indecent costumes was this harem pant ensemble. Granted, these were sheer harem pants, but she had on shorts underneath and was otherwise clothed. 
And while it is a costume that would hardly prove shocking to contemporary audiences today, in 1913, showing this much skin was, you know, offensive to respectable tastes. And and even perhaps more offensive than that, you know, were these pretenses that a woman was adopting a man's garment and trying to make it her own. So after a complaint about the show by a representative for the Bishop of Kensington, the Lord Chamberlain was forced to intervene. And I actually had to look this roll up the Lord Chamberlain. And I always thought it was a person. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it was yeah. a position. Chamberlain, yeah. It, okay. So it's the most senior officer of the royal household of the United Kingdom. So the fact that he had to intervene, this is a pretty big deal. And the Lord Chamberlain informed the theater's manager, Alfred Butt, that, quote, if public morality be any further outraged at the Palace Theater, the piece in question will be immediately forbidden and your license for plays will be canceled. So Gabby defended herself yet again in an open letter, calling her treatment unfair and comparing her performance to that of acrobats and dancers who received far less criticism for similar ensembles that they wore. Yeah, and this exchange was widely publicized, and it sparked a little bit of a heated debate, not just about the inherent subjectivity of the standards of quote-unquote morality, mm-hmm. um, but also government censorship. And coming to Gabby's defense was the very prominent playwright George Bernard Shaw, and he wrote a series of letters to the London Times in which he defended the public's right to decide what was objectionable. And really, in public opinion, they had already sided with Gabby because the theater was packed every single night. So this incident um, kind of reminds me of some of the topics that we touched on in our interview with Emma McClendon, um, which was the fourth episode of this season. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we discussed with her her exhibition, The Body, Fashion and Physique, at the Museum at FIT in New York City. And this is a must-listen dress, listeners. If you have not already, we got a ton of really great feedback. This was a really, really cool episode and conversation. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we kind of touched on was societies, and, and in this case, also governments, attempts to police women's bodies throughout history. And this most recent um, episode that we talked about earlier with Jennifer Lawrence, this is just a very recent example. And, and you know, you know, this whole controversy surrounding Gabby is, is just an, yet another example from 100 years ago. So in her book, When Broadway Was the Runway, author Marla Schweitzer emphasizes the power of celebrities such as Gabby, who were often the first to adopt controversial new fashions and thus, quote, presenting themselves as daring, adventurous, modern women who were unwilling to yield to calls for restraint or the remonstrations from the pulpit. Dressed in Paris fashions, their bodies became the public stages for dramatizing a series of collisions between 19th century morality and 20th century modernity. And so it's evidence in Gabby's acts, this quote-unquote morality and modernity were two concepts that were becoming increasingly at odds with each, mm-hmm. with each other as the 20th century progresses into the 1910s. And it's important to note at this time that the stage was an incredibly important source of fashion inspiration for audience members, This was especially true in Paris, the world epicenter of fashion, where the most prestigious of designers such as Jean Paquin and Paul Poiret dressed a host of celebrity clients on and off the stage. So women audiences attended plays expecting to see a designer's latest work, while critics decried certain plays as being little more than thinly veiled fashion advertisements. So embedded was the display of fashion in the visual and literary narrative of this time. So Thus, many of the concerns surrounding Gabby's costumes 
stemmed from a fear that she would influence or rather corrupt respectable young women who wanted to imitate their favorite star. Although Gabby's wealth and celebrity ensured her access to the best of Parisian couture, as a music hall performer, her costumes were almost dramatized adaptations, not necessarily replicas of the latest Mm -hmm. fashions. So those controversial lampshade tunics, harem pants, and elaborately draped form-fitting gowns that she wore in um, a la carte, for example— They were all really exaggerated versions of the Eastern-inspired trends found in the work of one of the most avant-garde couturiers at the time, such as Paul Paré. Mm -hmm. For this particular production, though, uh, Gabby was not wearing Paré. The costumes were designed in collaboration with one of Cassie and I's favorite fashion illustrators, Etienne Drian, and they were actually executed in the workrooms of the couture house Paquin. The English writer Osbert Sitwell remembers a performance of Gabby and a la carte in vivid detail in his memoir. And I really love this because it helps me to envision what a Gabby performance might have been like and to understand just why she was so mesmerizing. Quote, the moment that she was there, rather heavy-shouldered for her body and crested like a bird, for she was wearing on her head a tight-fitting cap loaded with ostrich feathers, She seemed with her fair hair and tawny fair skin to absorb every ray of light in the theater, to exist only in that flaring, sputtering brightness of another world, to be outlined with the icy fires of a diamond. She would sing a little, dance for a moment as if she was almost too fragile and too much in need of protection to execute the steps, sing in her voice with the rolling R's of her French throat, unmusical but provocative, and the whole result was perfect of its kind, a work of art but specialized as the courtship dance of a bird with the same glittering and drumming vanity, except that here the female and not the male played the chief role. And we will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. Gabby's rise to international celebrity was paralleled by the increased importance of costume and stagecraft in her performances. She worked tirelessly to bring something exciting to every new production, and each was meant to be more amazing and more spectacular than the last. After the close of A La Carte, Gabby concluded the year with an American tour of a production entitled Little Parisienne. For a one-night performance in California, Gabby reportedly brought 150 costumes and changed five to eight times per act. (laughs) So the 60 costumes Gabby had worn in her American debut in 1911 had almost tripled. And her pay had gone up as well because per her contract, Gabby by this time was now making a reported $6,000 a week, which is a whopping $145,000 a week in today's money. And we're able to report what she was making because the press really kept constant tabs on her. There was so much printed about her income and expenditures that Gabby felt the need to defend herself in an interview with Cosmopolitan in 1913. She said, I'm not wasteful or extravagant. If I spend 250,000 francs a year, it is my own money that I have earned myself. It goes principally for my stage gowns and other professional expenses. That is the only real expenses a woman can have, which she earns by hard work and buys with her own money. And that same year, she told the New York Journal, The world will take all a woman has and will give her nothing in return if she asks for nothing. But let her fix her price and stand by it, and the world will give her all she wants and ask to give her more. I'd just like to put it out in the universe. I'd like more, please. Yes. (laughs) 
Um, Gabby concluded her contract with the Schubert brothers in early 1914 and sailed for Paris, Harry in tow, to star in her very first film, which was an Adolf Zucker production called Her Triumph. It was during the summer that Gabby almost drowned um, when a deck that she and Harry were standing on collapsed while they were watching Bastille Day celebrations. And basically she was swept into the river and Harry had to like jump in and pull her to safety. Yeah, and I guess she was like a pretty good swimmer too, but she supposedly had this really heavy, beautiful cape on that pulled her down. (laughs) (laughs) She almost died for fashion. And she caught a chill, if I'm correct, right, yeah, after this happened. Sick. And if you look at pictures um, of her from around this time, you can tell that she's very thin and mm-hmm. pale. So she maybe she kind of wasn't doing so great after that accident. But she quickly got back to work um, prepping a new review for London. The outbreak of World War One in the fall of 1914 meant that Gabby would not perform in Paris again for three years. And with the outbreak of the war, many theaters in Paris were closed indefinitely. And Gabby initially divided her time performing in London and America. And it was during the war that the polarities between Gabby's on- and off-stage attire became increasingly evident. And really, any lavish displays of dress were just best reserved for the stage at this time. Because with the war came fuller, shorter skirts to support women's active participation in the war effort, in which Gabby herself played no small part. So throughout the war, Gabby used her celebrity to bring awareness to numerous organizations and causes. And there's this really great image of her from Vogue in 1914. And she's smiling and she's at the helm of a motorbike and she's taking a soldier on a ride. As a beloved entertainer, she really was an important figure um, in providing a much needed respite from the harsh realities of the time for soldiers on leave. And this service extended to the stage. The zenith of Gabby's career actually came in, right in the middle of World War I in a musical extravaganza entitled Laissez les tomber, or Let Them Fall. And this was produced in 1917 at the Casino de Paris. So it had innovative music, it had ornate sets, lavish costumes, and an extensive cast. And it, it really was one of the grandest spectacles that France had seen during this World War I period, and it set a precedent for a new era of entertainment that would follow in the 1920s. Chester Walton Jenkins remembered a performance of this particular show. This is what he wrote. He wrote, Gabby Delis and Harry Pilser were playing at the casino in Laissez les Tombes, and he goes on to say, there was a real jazz band that delighted the soldiers in kind of bewildered the English and the mm-hmm. French who sat agape, unaccustomed to the jumbled slam bang of American ragtime. The performers were so well-known in the States, were supported by the Bells of Paris, and the splendor of whose costumes offered a point for discussion in the columns of several Paris dailies as being out of order in a country which was bearing the brunt of war. But to the audience, the combination of French beauty and American stagecraft simply furnished the means of spending a very enjoyable evening. And many people credit Gabby and Harry with the introduction of the first American jazz band to France. And this includes them among scholars Jean Cocteau, Cecil Beaton, as well as the show's creator Jacques Charles. So the show brought the galvanizing rhythm of jazz to the capital of fashion and provided the first taste of the roaring life of the 1920s. And jazz was just another fitting extension of Gabby's modernity, that was already being expressed in her avant-garde costumes, fashions, and her life. 
The review might have been criticized um, by some for its extravagance, as were most things surrounding Gabby. Yeah. (laughs) But she actually contributed um, a lot of wartime work and and donated a lot of money. And to her, these performances were simply providing like another philanthropic service for the soldiers. For a few hours, her intoxicating performance and dazzling costumes distracted a war-torn city a fantasy brought to life for many of these soldiers who were on leave. Her large feathered headdresses, spangled body-bearing ensembles, they really kind of set cast the precedent for these sort of iconic costumes that we readily identify with the concept of a showgirl Mm -hmm. um, that we know today. And Gabby was always a woman ahead of her time, but she sadly would not live to enjoy the excitement that came with the so-called jazz age, an age that she played no small part in ushering in and surely would have enjoyed to the fullest. So Gabby had been plagued by issues with her throat her whole life, but she was always so determined that she just worked through it. And after the success of Les Les Tombe, she did not slow down. In 1919, she and Harry starred in a review entitled La Marche à la Toile with costumes designed by another of my favorite illustrators and costumes designers, Erte. Erte is hands down one of the greatest costume designers of the 20th century, and he had a prolific career that spanned almost eight decades. This show, however, would sadly be Gabby's last appearance on the music hall stage. Erte later recalled about Gabby. He said, she was indeed the greatest star of the music hall with all the appropriate qualities. And, you know, Gabby was always fashion forward, and we have all these photographs of her from that year that reveal her wearing the fashionable post-war silhouette with its now calf-skimming hemlines, which is hilarious yeah. because only a few years earlier she had gotten a lot of criticism for bearing her calves, but yeah. now it's completely fine. But there's also some images of Gabby, um, some of the last images of her while she and Harry were filming a beach scene for the film God of Hazard um, on the coast of France. And these photographs were taken by the very famed photographer, Jacques-Henri Lartigue, and they capture a more playful, kind of candid side of Gabby in between takes. She's smiling at the camera directly. She has on her head a turban, and with two two, two of the ends of the turban are standing straight up on, uh, in the air. But otherwise, her costume is simple. On her body, she's wearing a very figure-revealing swimsuit that has spaghetti straps, short shorts, Gabby was every bit the fashion rebel until the very, very end. She was. After returning from a trip to New York City later that year, Gabby came down with a bad case of pneumonia. And shortly after, doctors found a tumor in her throat. This is just devastating. So despite numerous operations, on February 20th, 1920, Gabby died at the age of 39 years old. It's important to remember that while Gabby might have been in charge of her image throughout her career— It was still very much an image. In 1913, she revealed to Cosmopolitan magazine, which I was not aware until this episode that Cosmo (gasps) dated all the way back to that time, but it does. Um, She stated to Cosmopolitan magazine, she said, quote, more or less fictitious character, which the public knows and seem to like as Gabby Lee. Oh, that Gabby is so very different than the real me. So Gabby seems to have used fashion as a little bit of a facade. And it was nonetheless a facade that she controlled. Mm -hmm. Who the real Gabby was, we may never know. Um, You know, today her name, as, 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 as we all kind of realize, has fallen somewhat into obscurity. But her legacy is very much alive and well in the voices of all the women out there who unapologetically embrace the clothing as an expression of themselves. 
So that does it for us today, Dress listeners. Until next time, may you too express yourself unapologetically next time you get dressed. Please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. As always, if you'd like to look into additional readings about this episode, you can find those on our website at dressedpodcast.com. Today's episode was recorded at Mouth Media's Network Studio in NYC, which is powered by Sennheiser. Learn more about Mouth Media at mouthmedianetwork.com. Music.